and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so New Year's week. Uh, this is it. We are coming up on New Year's for 2018. If you haven't checked it out, um, please do check out my podcast this week, which was my New Year's edition podcast, Year in Review for 2018. Had a few things on my mind, went over there on some stuff that had happened, mostly involved with the world of Scientology. I didn't get into events in the big wide world. I didn't cover politics or sports or too much in the way of social issues and stuff. But, um, but it had a few things to say and I thought it was a pretty good podcast. Also, kind of interesting to me, a couple weeks ago I posted a podcast about free speech. Now, not too many of you have been very interested in that, but it was so interesting to me uh, in coincidence, timing-wise, uh, that right after I posted that, uh, about, I don't know, a few days, about three or four days ago, I posted a joke meme on Facebook. I have a Facebook, I have a personal Facebook page, and I have a professional uh, critical thinker at large page that I post my work on. And I separated those out a little while ago, and I've had my Facebook just kind of personal with friends and, and people that I know, and, and some of you guys as fans. And uh, because I posted this meme, which I'm posting, which I'm, which I'm showing on the screen right now, which was just a joke. I mean, I, I think anybody who watches my channel clearly understands that I am uh, a free speech advocate, but I'm also not a hater or somebody who's going to post a bunch of ridiculous, you know, anti this, anti that kind of postings. It was just a joke. And I got banned from Facebook for two days for that. And then when I got back on Facebook a couple days ago, I think it was, I think it was actually uh, two days ago, I said, hey everybody, I'm, I'm back out of Facebook jail where I was languishing with my copy of Mein Kampf. Ha ha, did you miss me? And this was clearly just a joke. I didn't repost the meme or do anything, you know, too radical or crazy. I literally just posted what I said. And I've just been banned again for three days from Facebook. So clearly, Facebook has some issues uh, differentiating jokes from uh, reality and uh, telling me that I'm violating their community standards. So Facebook is probably an area I'm not going to be spending a whole lot more time on other than to post my work so I can share it with people that uh, are looking for it there. But otherwise, Facebook is pretty much showing that they are uh, not interested in preserving our personal data or information. We are their product. And uh, they're not very interested in our First Amendment rights there either. And by that I mean actual free speech. I don't mean hate speech or weird speech or let's have a platform we can all hate on each other or call for violence as I talked about on my podcast. You know, it was funny because I said in my podcast that these, these institutions and organizations like Facebook are private companies and have the right to do what they're doing. And I am not saying that that they don't. What I'm saying is that when it is an arbitrary, random reason for removing people, that becomes authoritarian. And I have had exper enough experience with that kind of uh, environment that I don't need to, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I, I don't need a lesson in, in how those kind of cultic environments work. I know exactly how they work, and that is basically what Facebook is now becoming. And that's a real shame. Uh, but that's Mark Zuckerberg and his team of uh, wonderful uh, censors. So anyway, just wanted to kind of throw that out there. So for those of you who actually follow me on Facebook, now you're going to know why um, you know I'm not posting over the next few days and uh, why I probably won't be posting there too much 
at all. And that is my little um, business announcement for this week. Not fun, not exciting, not something I'm thrilled about, but I figured I should let it be known because um, Facebook has some real sorting out to do. And I hope that we will see some kind of, um, you know, competition. If everybody, you know, everybody's all on a, a thing about how, you know, capital, go capitalism, go competition, go free market. Well, let's see some, you know, healthy free market competition go on here in terms of social media, because right now these platforms, um, you know, are, uh, are abusing their power. All right. Now, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now, because I think we've got some good questions and I want to give you some good answers. Leo Perez. I wanted to know more about the superpower building and what are the new strange superpower things that Scientologists are supposed to learn there? All right, Leo, well, I happen to know you're fairly new to this whole Scientology watching thing uh, because we've just actually recently connected on Facebook. <laughs> and, um, and you've had a lot of questions. And this one is a particularly interesting one. Superpower is um, a fairly complicated and advanced series of uh, actions that are done in Scientology in order to supercharge, quote unquote, uh, a Scientologist. Originally, L. Ron Hubbard conceived of superpower as the humongous rundown, is what he called it. And it was an establishment action for staff members. It was not meant to be delivered to Scientology public. Uh, Hubbard was uh, frustrated and uh, upset about non-compliance and about um, staff members not being able to read well, do their jobs well. It looked like, you know, he was he was upset about the fact that they would be doing some work, looking right at something and not seeing it, or, you know, not being able to learn or process information well. And this was all in the late 1970s that he was making these observations and coming up with this idea of how to help people by boosting uh, the staff member's ability to perceive their environment, be in, you know, have their attention, it's, it's what's called in Scientology, being in present time, having their attention in the here and now and being mindful of their surroundings and having some degree of situational awareness. Um, he wanted staff members to be competent and he wanted them to be able to be literate. And he continually was running into instances where, this, where these, these were not the case. And so he put together a, a series of actions, actually. The, the superpower rundowns were one of those things. There was another thing he did called the Key to Life course, which was supposed to teach basic grammar and communication and literacy. And there was the Life Orientation course, which was supposed to sort of get a person's head on straight as regards their entire life, kind of put their life under a microscope, go over every part of it, sort it out, organize it, put it together. These were concepts Hubbard came up with. It was up to the Sea Org members over the next many years to take these concepts and put them into written form and write issues and write lesson plans and, and books and exercises that people in Scientology could do in order to boost their grammar skills, their uh, communication skills, their life skills, and then finally with superpower, really supercharge their perceptions, their, um, their sense of ethics and moral compass. And, um, and their ability to read and understand things and get things done. It was not, superpower is not about, none of these things I'm talking about, are about getting you spiritually enlightened in the same way that the OT levels exist. Those, those are a whole different thing. The OT levels, the operating Thetan levels, 
going clear. That's all the Scientology bridge. These things you can do, whether you, they're voluntary. You don't have to do the Key to Life course or the Life Orientation course or Superpower in order to get to OT and go on up that bridge to total freedom. These are supposed to boost your powers and help you in your day-to-day -day life. And, um, and like I said, originally these were for staff members. But David Miscavige being the way that he is, um, he and Scientology being the money-making scam that it is, it's all about the Benjamins. So these services, which were meant to help the staff, were, were basically taken by David Miscavige after Hubbard died in 86, and he decided that he was going to make these services public services that they were going to pay a tremendous amount of money for. The Key to Life course was $5,000. Life Orientation course, I think, was another $1,000, and Superpower is, I, I don't know how much they charge for it, because it's a mix of auditing actions and what are called establishment officer actions, where somebody sits across from you and, and walks you through different things. It's different from auditing. It's more of a training kind of activity. And, um, and so Superpower is a mix of this stuff. Now, I'm not going to break down the entire, every single rundown, because it's, it's, it's beefy. There's a lot to superpower, and also some of it's conjecture, because we don't have the existing present-time materials leaked out of the church of what superpower consists of. We just have photographs and pictures of the delivery spaces, and we know from people who were in the church back in the day who originally put this stuff together what these rundowns or actions consist of. So, briefly, there are actions like the ethics and justice rundown, where a person is, uh, this is an audited action in, in, the, in Superpower, where a person is audited on past incidents where they were uh, run through the ringer or, you know, made to suffer injustices, either at the hands of Scientology or otherwise, um, you know, in their life. That's just the first step. Then there's other actions you do. Now, the most famous of them, and the, and the one that's talked about the most, is the perception rundown. L. Ron Hubbard claimed that we have way more than just five basic senses. And, I, and common sense shows that, of course, we do. We have, uh, you know, there's other perceptions we have, like air pressure or density, um, muscle density, um, body... Um, position is a, is a, you know, you're aware of what position your body is in, right? This could be a perceptic, I suppose. It's not necessarily a medium of perception, but it's something you would be aware of and be, you know, and, and perceive. Uh, the oiliness of something, the, the taste of something can be broken down into different, different, you know, sour, sweet, right? Um, pain is a perception. Uh, it's kind of different from anything else. Um, you know, heat, cold, all, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, Hubbard listed out about 75 of these things. And the, the perception rundown of superpower is supposed to drill you or get you practicing using all of these perceptions, including your theta perceptions, which is, you know, you as a spiritual entity perceiving things. So all of this stuff is kind of covered in this, in this superpower rundown, Okay. It's extensive, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to do, and now it is basically being offered at the Flag Service Organization in Clearwater. And, um, and I want to, you know, just in case I'm not being, you're not clear on this from the whole <laughs> thrust of my channel, 
Um, none of this stuff actually works, okay? This isn't stuff that is actually going to supercharge you. I did the Key to Life course and the Life Orientation course, and they were helpful. They absolutely were. I understand grammar better than I would have if I had not done that class. But to think that that was, you know, some life-changing event that was, you know, that, that set my court, my life on a whole new path and, and now I have the key to life, I mean, okay, I can communicate better. That's, that's pretty much what I got out of that course because I understand nouns, adverbs, pronouns, etc., right? Uh, so it's a good thing to know, but it's not like, you know, the, the walls come tumbling down and everything in your world is just totally rocked by doing these things. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about this stuff and describing it in such a way that it might sound kind of interesting and, wow, maybe I might, wouldn't mind doing something like that. But no, no, that's not my message here. All right, so um, the other thing about the superpower building, it's this gigantic construct in the middle of Clearwater. It's this huge, huge building that they literally did build from the ground up. Uh, that building is 100% designed by Scientology. And the top floor of that building uh, is dedicated to the delivery of what's called the cause resurgence rundown. So in that building, you have all the usual Scientology services being offered. You have superpower being delivered on, in the special places where it's, you know, like all the perceptic stuff. You know, that's a big deal there. Um, and then you have this cause resurgence rundown. And this consists of a big, wide, open space. The top floor is, is mainly a big, wide, open space, not very well lit, apparently. And there's a pole or beam of light in the middle of the room. And what you do is you run around it in circles. And I don't mean like right up on it. I mean, I guess you're a little bit distance away, but you're running and running and running. It was originally called the running program. And you run for hours. You know, you run, you walk. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, whipping you and, and beating on you to keep running. But the idea is that you keep going. And what you're supposed to be doing with this is it's supposed to be reminiscent of times way, 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 millions and millions and trillions of years ago where you as a spiritual entity were stuck going around, you know, a sun or, or being fixated on objects or being stuck and not being able to, to perceive or move around or, or have the full benefit of your senses and perceptions and abilities. What this cause resurgence rundown is supposed to do is resurge or rehabilitate your ability to be a causative being. And, uh, and you do this by running around this beam of light or pole in the middle of the room until you, you know, have some kind of it moment, epiphany, where you realize that, you know, hey, wow, now I can be, you know, more causative. I'm the one moving this body around and, you know, this kind of nonsense. So, uh, so that is the other thing that's delivered in that superpower building that is not delivered anywhere else in the world of Scientology. Nowhere else in Scientology can you do the superpower rundowns or can you do the cause resurgence rundowns except in Clearwater at the superpower building. All right, and that is my rundown on that. TJB fan. When I blew from the Sea Org after 13 years, I went through a long period afraid to let anyone know of my connection to Scientology. I felt embarrassed about that and lied on my job applications about my job history. Through the years, I got used to thinking and speaking without all the habitual Scientology words and phrases, but there are a few I never came up with good enough English words for, such as DevT and Surfac. 
Could you pass on your replacements for these and other Scientology words, please? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to take this up because it was a good time for a little reminder out there that the language of Scientology is itself part of the control structure of Scientology. Specialized language always works this way, but in an authoritarian system like Scientology, it works in a very negative way. By this I mean we all have specialty language in lots of different professions or areas of activity. Um, and generally, there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you're building, you know, sort of neural pathways uh, in the brain by using language, and it gets you thinking along certain, in certain ways. It's kind of like muscle memory in, in, in martial arts, right? You have muscle memory. Well, you have brain muscle memory where you're, you're constantly reusing the language, and so the same thought processes are occurring. And the more you use specialized language like that, the more ready you are to be thinking that way, and the harder it is to think outside those ways. So this is why language can become a tool of an authoritarian to literally engage in a form of mind control through language. By redefining terms through propaganda and by using those terms over and over and over again, you can get people to think the way you want them to and make it very, very hard for them to think any way, any other way. With that all being said, this is why when people come out of Scientology, we encourage them to stop using the language and start using other language and other words and, and stretch your brain and make it you know, hurt and, and work a little bit. To, um, to, to go beyond that language because what it does is it literally starts rewriting neural pathways. So at least that's how I understand the science of it. And I'm, of course, heavily simplifying all of this. But this is what I understand uh, is the, one of the very, very important aspects of language. So with Scientology terminology, there are two dictionaries that are this thick, full of Scientology words and expressions. Um, there's a lot to unlearn when you come out of Scientology. Um, some of the language is super specialized. Um, some of it is regular English words that have been redefined in a new way. Uh, for example, the word engram in uh, Dianetics. An engram is a medical term. It actually comes from cellular, um, celtalis, cellular, anyway, it's a cellular term. I forgot the, I forgot the science word for study of cells. Anyway, I'm sure I'll get five comments now reminding me what it is. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, anyway, uh, that's where that word comes from. It's, a, it's like a trace memory trace on a cell uh, is what Hubbard said it originally meant. And it was uh, usurped by him to mean an incident of pain and unconsciousness and, uh, and trauma in your past. And so with Dianetics, you run out engrams. Um, Okay, so as far as alternative language for these things, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, as far as I I've already uh, changed over the words n-theta, uh, mental mass, engrams, I, 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 I put all of that under stress and trauma. Those are the, those are the, the English equivalents of those terms that make the most sense to people. Uh, for an ARC break, I call, I call that an upset or, uh, yeah, uh, like an argument or an upset. Um, and for, um, okay, now for the words you just came up with though, DevT and Surfac, those are, those are the tougher ones. DevT is a term in Scientology for developed traffic. 
It's an administrative term, not a term having to do with the mind. It's one of Hubbard's um, policy words. In the day-to-day -day course of affairs in any business or organization, you have traffic, you have communication flying around the organization verbally, in writing, through emails or whatever. This is called traffic. And when uh, something occurs that is irregular, unpredicted, random, you will tend to develop more traffic around how to deal with that thing. And so DevT has become a term in Scientology for random, unnecessary, cluttered traffic that is taking up people's time that really doesn't belong there, doesn't need to be there. It's, it's, uh, it's a waste of time. It's, it's, uh, it's annoying. It's, it's not useful. It's not productive. Okay, that's DevT. If somebody brings you uh, a dispatch, let's say, you know, like, like you're um, a, a junior and you have a senior and you walk a dispatch to the senior to make sure he gets it because you want him to see it right away because it's time sensitive or something. Well, you're bringing your body to him and you're bringing this piece of paper to him and he's going to go, well, this is DevT. I don't, I don't need your body in front of me. I just need the dispatch to come. And it should have come without being having to be so time sensitive or be such an emergency rush situation. It should have just come on the regular traffic flows. You know, dispatches get routed around an organization every day. So, um, so the senior would feel like this person is dev-teeing him. Okay, he's bringing him developed traffic. I hope I'm communicating this well. Uh, so basically, the regular English word for this would be, stop bothering me. <laughs> you know, don't, this is confusing, this is unnecessary. Developed traffic is just, you know, it's, it's random nonsense uh, would be another word for it, right? As far as uh, surfac, oh, okay. So a service facsimile, a facsimile is a mental image picture, okay? And a ser it's called a service facsimile because it services the person. And how it services me is like this. It makes me right and it makes you wrong. That's what a service facsimile is. It's a, it's a mental image picture of something that happened that I can use to make myself feel better because I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm right because you're wrong. That's part of the package. And it generally is used to justify or rationalize some disability that I have. It's an effort for me to get you to sympathize with me because of my disability and therefore I'm right. I have this disability so I'm right. I'm a victim and I'm right. And you're somehow either persecuting me or, or pushing me in some direction I don't want to go. And so I'm going to use this disability against you to make you wrong for what you're doing to me. Okay? Here's the classic example of this, and it'll make it clearer. A little kid doesn't want to go to school. So he invents being sick. He makes it up. And this is now this picture that he has of a sickness, right? He's, he's been sick in the past, he's got pictures of being sick, or he's had an illness or injury of some kind, and he, and he takes that picture and he brings it up to present time out of his mind, right? And he uses the feelings and thoughts and attitudes and emotions of that picture, that memory, to now make it seem as though he is sick. And he will act sick, and he will think he is even sick. I mean, he really puts it there. And mom comes along and says, you need to go to school. 
And he goes, I ain't going to school. I'm sick. And she goes, no, you're going to school. See, the service facsimile is not working. He's trying to use this thing. He's trying to show, hey, I'm sick. I can't go. Oh, poor is me. Woe is me. And his mom's got by in it. She's going, I don't care. You're going to school, you know. And he goes, no, I'm so sick. You don't understand. <sighs> and he starts pouting. He starts getting really upset. And maybe he starts crying. And he starts really making out how sick he is to the point that he can even actually get sick, right? There's this hysterical illness or sickness. I mean, we know about this. This happens. So, um, so the kid, you know, keeps making mom wrong by being sick and trying to get her sympathy, you see, for his sickness or his illness or his injury. Maybe he's got a broken arm or something. I mean, it doesn't have to be a sickness. It could be some other physical or mental or emotional disability. And, and he's trying to, to sponge sympathy from other people for this thing, you see. And to the degree that it works and he gets that sympathy, he'll keep using it. He'll keep doing it. So he gets sick. He gets home to stay home from school. Okay, fine. Then he gets better and he goes back to school and lives his life. But then a year later or two years later or whatever, he has got some big final coming and he's really freaked out about it. He's not prepared. He didn't study. He didn't do his homework. And he wants to stay home and avoid it, so he gets sick again. But this time, he's pulling up that service facsimile, that picture from the last time he was sick, and he's making himself sick again, and his mom's like, oh, God. And again, they have the battle, and if she doesn't sympathize with him and make him feel like he, you know, deserves the sympathy and, and, uh, and deserves to stay home, he'll keep plugging on it. He'll keep, you know, he'll keep just, no, I'm so sick. I can't go. Rah, rah, rah. And now at this point, he's probably forgotten all about what happened a year or two ago. And it's not a conscious thing, you see. It's, it's sort of a subconscious thing. That's another part of this picture. So all of this package all put together with some other things too, but basically this package I just explained is called a service facsimile. It's something, it's, an, it's a concept Hubbard invented to explain this kind of behavior. Um, and clearly this would be non-optimum behavior on the part of anybody, I mean, giving themselves a disability in order to rationalize or justify inaction or an inability to do something, and then getting sympathy from other people and making them wrong if they don't help you out or sympathize with you. I mean, there's a whole thing there, right? And I don't really have a single word that encapsulates this entire concept. I never have come up with one in all the years that I've been out of Scientology. I've continued to call it a surf, a surfac or a surface facsimile. But I don't know that, you know, that this is actually a thing either. I think that this is an amalgamation of things that go on with people. Um, that, you know, because you have psychosomatic illness here, you have uh, actual trauma and disability here, you have pleas for sympathy and relationship issues here. I mean, there's a lot going on. So I think it probably oversimplifies the entire matter to just say, oh, it's just a surfac. And in Scientology, how this gets used is it tends to be used to make people wrong. So here is a person who's truly got, not, not trying to evoke sympathy out of somebody, he's just sick, you know, he's just, ah, I'm just sick today, I'm just not feeling good, or he's got, a, you know, some problem, he hurt himself on the job, let's say. Okay, like let's, for example, say um, when I was on the RPF, I um, broke my finger, 
And I was told the first night that I broke my finger, I was in more pain than I had ever been in in my entire life because I had never broken a bone before. I did not have any earlier example of how it feels to do that. And it's extremely painful, even if it's just a hairline fracture of your finger, which is what happened to me. And I was told, stop surfacking. Because I was, you know, saying, hey, man, I, 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 I'm in a lot of pain here. I can't work. I need, you know, I need to go take care of this. No, you're just surfacting is what I was told, right? So you can run this on somebody who's not actually doing anything wrong also. And that's the kind of slang terminology usage of this in Scientology is, oh, he's just surfacting means he's just trying to be right. And you can encapsulate it down to that if you're using it that way. If you're just using it in that slangy way of, you know, just, just uh, showing that somebody is, is just trying to make some stupid bid for sympathy and they don't really, there's really nothing wrong with them, then you could say, you know, oh, he's just trying to be right. He's just trying to, you know, he always has to be right. You know, I always has to make me wrong, always has to make me wrong, right? So you could, you could encapsulate it that way. But otherwise, um, I don't know. I don't know any other words for that. But uh, again, if you, any of you guys out there have any ideas on that, go ahead and, and throw them in my way in the comments. I'd be, uh, I'd be curious to see what other ways of thinking about this there might be out there. Gary Moore. Please explain a lot more about the Markabians in the Between Lives area and the implant stations. I believe one is meant to be on the moon and there are others on Venus, which is impossible, of course, because the average temperature on Venus in the winter is something like 450 degrees Celsius. Venus also has an atmosphere much heavier than Earth's and it would be impossible for a person to be on the surface because of the air pressure. We have mapped all of Venus and the moon. Where are the implant stations? <laughs> okay, Gary. Well. Uh, silly and fun question, but I mean, seriously, L. Ron Hubbard just made stuff up, but just off the top of his head, all the time in his lectures, especially on the subject of space opera. He was, after all, a science fiction writer and fantasy writer, and he did have quite an active imagination. So there are no implant stations on Venus or Mars or uh, the moon. And Mars also, by the way, is another, another place where there are supposed to be these stations. So. I cannot easily explain in just a few minutes the entire cosmology of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard's vision of all the things that are going on in the big wide universe out there. It's a long story. It is contradictory in some places, very, very incomplete, lots of holes in other places. He just drops hints here and there and everywhere about all of this without totally fully explaining what he's talking about. So you get bits and pieces, and from these bits and pieces, you're supposed to put together a sort of puzzle picture of the whole thing. Um, and it changed over the years, right, as he did research. So, uh, so, so basically what we're talking about, though, in, in, in broad strokes here, is that there are civilizations, Hubbard claims, out in the universe. And um, there is a galactic confederation out there. There is a Markabian Confederacy out there, and or at least there was before I think it was uh, blown away or destroyed by Xenu as part of the OT3 Xenu narrative. I believe from what I've read and understand about all this, that the Markabians are the culture or society that Xenu was in charge of. And when he committed mass genocide and blew everybody up here on Earth, otherwise known as Tegiak, he was wiping out all these Markabians.
the Markabians um, were but one of many civilizations out there. There have been invader forces. Hubbard numbered them. I think there were four or five or six of them that came through this solar system over the last many millions of years and set up these implant stations. And they were warring between this, these cultures. So the first invader force comes through here and it sets up some implant stations on um, on Earth, in the Pyrenees Mountains, let's say. That's a place where there were supposed to be some. And, uh, and so when people die, they get sucked into these implant stations, spiritually now, through the use of electronics that are supposedly so advanced that we haven't developed them here on Earth yet, but they can somehow control or sort of tractor beam a spiritual entity. Now, how that's supposed to work is anybody's guess. Hubbard never really totally fully explains it except to say that Thetans, spiritual entities, somehow are subject to the laws of the physical universe even though they are not part of the physical universe. And this is one of the key contradictions in Scientology that just doesn't make any sense at all, is how it is that a spiritual entity that has no mass, no weight, no wavelength, no location in space or time, yet somehow has an awareness of being inside the physical universe and running a body, and somehow that spiritual entity is subject to these electronics that can control it and hurt it. And so, um, and it has to be that way, otherwise all this cosmology falls apart. So you die, you go to an implant station, you get implanted, you get run through this mill of uh, then there's thousands and thousands of different implants, but the basic idea is to make you forget your last lifetime and get you ready to go get another body and don't do anything else. You don't get to fly off and go make your own planet or be aware that you're a spiritual entity that's outside of this whole game of bodies and everything. You're supposed to forget all that, see, and the implant stations are supposed to make you do it. So they set up these implant stations, and one civilization, one invader force, might have set them up on the Pyrenees Mountains. And then another one came along and said, oh, there's Legion X's implant stations, and they're running this society, and they're controlling these people here. But we want to control these people, so we're going to set up an alternative implant station, and we're going to do it on Mars or Venus. And we're going to bury these things in such a way that the people on this planet with their primitive technology will not be able to detect them, right? Because they're going to be shielded by electronics again that are too advanced for our current state of technology. But somehow Hubbard knows about all of this and he, um, you know, and he regaled his followers with stories about this stuff. So this is one of the key ways that intergalactic civilizations out there control populations is through these implants, the between lives implants. You have a body, you grow the body, you run the body, the body dies, and you go off and get implanted and then you come back. And you've done this millions and millions and millions of times to the point where really all they have to do is sort of say implant and you go, oh yeah, you know. And off you go and get another body and, and continue living, you know, life after life after life. That's basically the structure of it. And, um, and Hubbard said not a whole lot more about these various invader forces, you know. He, he said that they influenced civilizations. Uh, he talked about the fact that the Egyptian civilization was, was very heavily influenced by invader forces. Um, 
He said that they had laser pistols and there were whole battles going on here on Earth between these invader forces out of sight of us. You know, it was kind of a men in black kind of situation. You know, the movies, Men in Black, kind of like that. Inve you know, aliens come down to Earth all the time. They hide, they do this, they do that. And, uh, and we don't have the technology to deal with them. And, um, and if we did, we'd probably just make human beings forget about them rather than actually, you know, uh, I mean, real men in black kind of stuff, you know. So that's kind of the picture of how things are in some ways, according to Hubbard. Um, and, you know, and of course, anything goes. So he could, you know, he, I, I didn't hear every single word L. Ron Hubbard ever said. So there's lots and lots of lectures he gave where he probably talked more about this stuff beyond what I know. I read a lot of stuff. I listened to a lot of lectures, but there might be more information than what I'm saying right now. But pretty much this is how I understand things to be with this stuff. And I hope that gives you a little bit of a picture. It's a, like I said, it's a deep subject. You have to go through a lot of Hubbard materials in order to even get as much as what I've told you here. Um, but that's how it goes. And that's, uh, that's what I can say about it. Dan Berkey. The problem of the church, from what I see, lies at its control center, Miscavige. He's heavily insulated. So how is he to be flushed out in the open? How is he to be confronted? I can't help but compare him to a tyrant like Stalin. He was totally insulated and managed to live out his life and die of old age in his bed. He dictated his edicts from within an almost impenetrable bunker. Miscavige operates similarly, or so it seems. How can he be caught and made accountable? Dan, I'm going to be totally honest with you and tell you that I have absolutely no idea. Uh, short of, uh, I mean, actually not even short of this. I mean, there really isn't any way. The man's life is very, very controlled. Scientologists can't even say where he's going to be and when. I mean, it's all super, super hush confidential. He, um, David Miscavige definitely has ensconced himself very, very thoroughly behind a whole lot of walls and barricades. And he's deathly afraid of ever being um, summoned to a court of law. He is uh, terrified of being confronted by news media or a critical news media or by anybody who um, can manage to get past all of his barriers and get to him. He's never going to let that happen. And he's probably going to die very much like Stalin, hiding and alone and afraid. Uh, or I should say very much like L. Ron Hubbard. That is the fate for very many of these types of people. And, um, you know, these leaders never seem to really be very good students of history because they, they never get that, you know, that this is the, that when you victimize other people as a profession, as your lifestyle, you, you're not going to live a life of happiness and safety and security. You're just not. It's impossible because there's just too many people who want to get to you because you're hurting them. You know, I mean, this is like, you'd think this is, be, you know, this is common sense. But for people who are stuck in, you know, psychosis and megalomania and narcissism, they can't think outside of that. And so that's where David Miscavige is at, is he's, he's built himself up into a little prison of his own. And I feel absolutely zero sympathy for the guy and never will. But that's where, that's the life he lives. And he never wants for anything. Uh, anything he asks for, he can get, except a nice day out at the park, <laughs> you know, a trip to McDonald's, um, you know, like a, like a, a day at the amusement park, I mean, going to the movies, like he, he can't have that life that we have.
uh, because he just is, you know, who he is and he does what he does. So uh, that's what I can say about that, really, is I don't think that anything is ever going to happen that's going to get to him unless, here's the thing, it really is up to him because, or up to somebody close to him who can actually get in and get some video evidence or, or irrefutable evidence that he is doing bad things to people, right? I mean, we know he does. We have endless amounts of testimony about it. But no law enforcement officials are willing to raise a finger to do anything about it. And they won't until evidence, hardcore evidence is provided, irrefutably showing that he is engaging in criminal activity and it cannot be denied. And as soon as that happens, we will see some kind of justice for, you know, for Scientologists against uh, David Miscavige. And until that happens, we won't. And that's about, that's about the nuts and bolts of it. Rigo with Joden. How is it possible that staff members know about the tone scale, but then allow other staff members to abuse them? When you do your work at tone level three, and then your boss comes to you and is yelling at 1.5 antagonism, or 1.1 covert hostility. How is it possible that they accept that and not say, hey friend, what you are doing now is not okay, and put your TRs in and get some training. There's, a, there's another aspect here that you have to look at, and that aspect is the senior-junior dynamic. And automatically, when somebody is in a position of authority over you, your ability to question them or stop them from doing what they're doing as an authority figure is automatically compromised. We already know from many, many experiments, uh, Milgram experiments, that uh, specifically that authority figures, just by the sake of being authority figures, have a degree of control over us that is subconscious and, and unstoppable, uh, or, or nearly so, right? I mean, yes, you can stand up to them. You can get, get, get up your gumption and, you know, I'm not going to take this anymore, goddammit. You know, you can do that. But it's not our natural tendency at all. It's our natural tendency is completely the opposite, is to do exactly what we're told. So in the case of Scientology, you have a situation where people are indoctrinated that there is an organizing board with seniors and juniors, and those command lines are to be followed, very militaristic, actually. Um, then you have the fact that policy letters are written by L. Ron Hubbard with, with guidelines of how the organization is supposed to run. And in those policy letters, many, many places, L. Ron Hubbard said that if you have to yell and scream and even beat up on people in order to get them to do stuff that you need done, that's okay. That's especially true in the Sea Org because there are special issues that only exist in the Sea Org. They are called flag orders. Uh, there's also other ones called central bureau orders, and there's many other kinds. But they're only for the Sea Org. And that's where most of the abuse happens. And that's where you'll find these issues where Hubbard said, uh, you know, I can, I can act like Captain Bly. I can make Captain Bly look like a Sunday school teacher if you guys don't get your collective shit together and start doing what I'm telling you to do. Right? He had that kind of attitude sometimes. And, that kind, and so therefore, when he writes that stuff down, people who are in positions of authority feel emboldened and empowered, enabled, so to speak, to take their frustrations out on their juniors to yell and scream and give them a hard time because that's what they need. There's another policy letter Hubbard wrote where he specifically says that you have to 
make the penalties for non-compliance too gruesome to confront. So if you're going to non-comply with my orders, I'm going to make your life so gruesome that you don't want to deal with, with that and you would rather comply with my orders than face my wrath. So that's the kind of policies that Hubbard wrote that justify seniors laying into their juniors and the juniors just taking it because they've read those policies too and they know the senior has that kind of authority. So, so even without Hubbard's issues and policies, you have the senior-junior dynamic. Then you add Hubbard's policies on top of that and, excuse me, and it's very easy to take those policies and make those more important than what Hubbard had to say about the tone scale and emotions. And this is the contradictory nature of Scientology, that he will say a good thing over here. He'll say, hey, you should be uptone and happy and organized and not angry and not taking it out on other people because that's low tone and that's not good. And then over here he says the exact opposite. And it's up to the Scientologist to figure out how do I reconcile these? And this happens over and over and over again in Scientology. So that is the answer to that question. Thanks for asking. It's time for Flash Answers. Travis, do you find yourself avoiding some situations because they remind you of Scientology somehow? Only authoritarian, controlling, censoring ones. <laughs> like Facebook. Robert Black. A lot of Scientologists' experience at staff level seems to involve deprivation and punishment. Is there any evidence that the architect of much of this in later days, David Miscavige, has had experience of same in his formative Scientology days? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, he grew up in a fairly abusive household, and he, um, from what I understand, and this is actually based on what his father Ron Miscavige Sr. wrote in his book, Ruthless, about his upbringing and, and about David Miscavige. So uh, it wasn't a really, you know, optimum home situation. And then, of course, at a young age, in his teenage years, he got into the Sea Org. And the Sea Org, right under L. Ron Hubbard, he, he went right to the top pretty quickly. Um, you know, not immediately, but fairly quickly. He rose in the ranks. And, um, and working for L. Ron Hubbard was definitely uninteresting experience. Um, he could be a saint one day and an absolute scumbag the next. This is all well described in Janice Grady's books on uh, the Commodore's Messengers uh, organization and her experience growing up with Scientology uh, right under L. Ron Hubbard as Commodore's Messenger. So I can't encapsulate all of that, especially not in a flash answer, except to say it was an abusive environment. And you can read Janice's book and get all the details of that. Marcus G., I have found Scientology's fast-paced, nerdy music gets really too much after a while. And that is another thing I wanted to go over. Over the past 20 years, their music hasn't seen much change. They keep playing the same or very similar music, even though electronic music has seen massive shifts and overhauls over the, over the years. So they seem to be in a time capsule stuck on 90s music. How did you feel about the fast, annoying music, Chris? How does anyone else feel about it? Pretty much the same way you do. I mean, you know, they're always riffing on uh, modern music and taking uh, sampling music that is popular and, uh, and, and tempered that with what David Miscavige wants to hear and see. Everything you see that is presented by Scientology has been uh, 
approved by David Miscavige. And, um, and if he didn't, it, so, so it's got, it's what he wants, not what all the Scientologists want. That's, that's what you get there. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. I wanted to say very quickly, I get asked a lot of questions about the shirts that I wear, where did I get them, and I want you guys to all know that from here on out, the shirts you see me wearing on my shows, if they are not button-down collared shirts or, you know, plain shirts, if there's some kind of thing on my shirts, it'll be available for you to order at my critical merchandise um, uh, at Spreadshirt.com. The link is below under Critical Merchandise, and also in the corner, one of these corners has a little uh, O with an I in it, and you can click on that and go to my Spreadshirt site, and you can pick up shirts, hats, mugs, you can make anything you want to with these designs if you if you sort of figure out how to do it at the Spreadsheet store, but they're all there uh, for purchase. So I thought that would be, I just kind of threw that out there again, a way for you to help support my channel and also get something back. That was why I started putting these things together in the first place, and I'm back to it. So you'll see more designs from me also over the next coming year as I, um, as I do this. But um, if you're ever curious about, the, about getting anything that you see on my shows, that's where you can get it. All right, guys. I will see you guys next time. Have a very, very happy new year. And let's see if we can't make 2019 way better than 2018 was. Bye-bye, guys.